Good morning. Good morning. It's a beautiful Lord's Day. We can come together and we can uh, look at God's Word together. Pleased to bring to you greetings from Faith Bible Church Marietta, as well as the brothers and sisters that we know in Manila at Emmanuel Baptist Church. They know that we are on furlough. They're asking for us to return as soon as we can to uh, serve with them further at Baptist Bible Seminary, at Faith Academy, and at uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church. So um, we appreciate your prayers. Uh, there are some prayer cards available near the offering box in the back. And there are, if you don't have one, there is an um, outline for today's sermon as well. So uh, I, we first met Angelo up at uh, Community, Baptist, Community Bible Church Vallejo at the Exalting Christ Ministry Bible Conference. And got to know him and his enthusiasm, of course, and his joy for serving among people. He's a dear brother, getting to know him uh, over coffee recently. It was a joy to get to know him and his heart. I know that he was a missionary at one time to, and his family to uh, India. And uh, we know some of the folks that, that they served with over there. Just met them uh, this year. Uh, so it's just a joy to be able to come and serve here and look in the Word together with you related to uh, uh, the passage that was read in Isaiah. Um, as you are, I understand, well, we were here last week and it was the one-year anniversary. And we are encouraged to see uh, so many people uh, coming together here in this uh, body of believers. And just by way of encouragement, you know, it's, it's a one-year anniversary and that's a milestone. That's a praise the Lord thing. It's, it's a joy because I'm sure there were many trials and, and fears and things that went into that first year. And uh, not to, you know, make things difficult, but it could get worse at times. <laughs> Yet we have a Lord who wants the, His church to go forward, right? And so no matter the fears that we're facing, no matter the uh, struggles or challenges that come, changes that, of what might have been, planned and having to do something completely different as the Lord leads you in that ministry, I just wanted to encourage you in this thing, that you must pursue as a highest level of priority, unity. It must be maintained. It must be exercised. It must be held on to. Uh, it is ours to hold on to because it is given to us by the one who has commanded that we do it. Unity is the most important thing that the church must hold on to no matter what, and the things that come against it, such as the number one thing, unforgiveness, will destroy any church. And we've seen it happen over the years. And so my encouragement to you is this thing that you are doing, this work and the stepping out in faith of becoming a church as a church plant and, and one-year-old, keep pursuing it, but remember to keep in the forefront of your mind that you must Pursue it with unity. Stay together in the Lord under the chief shepherd. Follow your uh, under shepherds that he has placed here and stand firm together. Uh, stand firm and stand united as fellow Christians together in this place at RBC. Uh, hold tightly, hold fast to the gospel and to the unity that is uh, the Lord has given you and wants you to maintain. So that's my encouragement to you. Uh, as some things have been said already about the things that we do in Manila, 
I uh, won't go further into that, but you can look at our website. It's not what it says on the card. The card is man equipmanila.org. We just couldn't get that one to work, so it is equipmanila.com. So whenever you go and you sit, put in org and it comes back funny, just change it to .com and it'll be fine. At least that's what Bluehost and Weebly tell me. So we'll just carry on from there. I wanted to share uh, briefly an opening thing here related to the fact that we, as God's people, are people that are called upon to think. I mean, we, we have, all people do, right? And it is something that God has created within us to consider, to ponder things. And I really like this uh, particular statue here. My wife wanted to go to Paris. The last thing we did before we, pretty much before we left uh, Central Europe was to take a, a blitz over to Paris and we hit all the museums. And this one really intrigued me by Rodin. And he, uh, he captures it pretty, pretty well, doesn't he? There's a man just thinking. And that's what we do. We, we are, we're allowed to as believers. We're, we're called upon to consider, to ponder, to think about. Uh, the, I love this word. Here's, a, here's a, uh, this word consider and to think. But here's another shot here of this particular um, statue. Rodin actually used the same statue in miniature on this what he called the gates of hell. We are to consider the ultimate questions of life, the ultimate things that we face, and there is a place called hell. Now, he was nowhere near a believer, but he did have an understanding of certain things, a revelation to him of sorts to understand these things. And here in the center of the gates that he called the gates of hell is that same man thinking, pondering, pondering about his life. And we are called upon to do that. Um, in fact, just recently, it's, it, this isn't just back in the time of Rodin a few hundred years ago. This is... Uh, Way back, just recently, there was an archaeological dig in Israel, and they found a pottery that had a thinking figure, very much like this particular one. That's, they've figured out it's like 3,800 years old. So it goes way back, doesn't it? And uh, the Lord gave us life, and it's safe to say that we should learn from the life that He has given us, since He is the sustainer of it, He is the caretaker of it. And we are called upon to, to ponder the human condition, life, death, and what it all means, because he has revealed about it in his word. And so as we go forth this day from here on, we must think, we must ponder. God's written to us in the book. We are a people of the book. We, we consider what he has given to us in his book, and it is a living book. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Visit many, book, many good books, but live in the Bible. He also said, nobody ever outgrows Scripture. The book widens and it deepens with our years. And one, one pastor has said, and I love when I, when I heard him say this, listen, I've read other books, but this book reads me. What did he mean? What's that all about, reads me? It studies me, it examines me. It transforms me. It touches my life and makes me what God wants me to be in life as I serve Him, as I walk this earth. 
And so it is a living and active book, able to touch our hearts. Hebrews, 12, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This Bible that we have, preserved by the Lord, 66 books written over 1,500-year time span from three continents by 40 human authors, superseded and, and, and overse overseen by the Lord Himself, the only true authority in the universe. And He has, he has decided to give us His will and reveal about who He is through this book. He is the sovereign, supreme, and majestic Lord. And it is a supernatural book, possessing a unity both with Old and New Testament, and over all those writers, and over all those themes written about. It is an amazing, an amazing book. You know, every year, Time and Newsweek, they love to come out with these headlines. Maybe you've seen them. Such as, is the Bible reliable? It usually comes out at Christmas time. Or Easter. Is, is the resurrection true? Uh, often they will come out with things like that, attacking, of course, the validity and the verifiability of the Scriptures, the, their, their, their authority. But God has something else in mind related to the Scriptures. We know from the book of Isaiah, and there's a lot of good stuff in Isaiah, but this one really caught my attention. When I considered the fact that, you know, at times, one can become discouraged and wonder, is the book, of, uh, is, the book is the Bible, is the, is the Word of God relevant to me? It is. It's always relevant. Always. And he promised that he would provide the Bible to us and that he would maintain it and, and sustain it in our lives, in the world. Isaiah 30, verse 8 says, Now go, and he's talking to Isaiah, Now go, write it on a tablet before them. And inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a written witness forever. As a witness forever. That's what our Lord has done for us. And with all this in mind, as we consider, as we ponder, as we think, as we look at this particular passage today, we want to take into consideration what is it that the Lord is revealing about Himself and also revealing as to how we should respond to him. So look again at, uh, we'll look again in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. And in this uh, passage, we find that there is one particular big idea. Now, R.C. Sproul, one of the ones who uh, most brought to the forefront in the last 30 years, the focus of the holiness of God. He, he uh, had this to say about the, the idea of holiness. And this is the idea that's coming out of this passage. The idea of holiness is so central to biblical teaching that it is said of God, holy is his name. That's his actual name in Luke chapter 1. His name is holy because he is holy. He is not always treated with holy reverence. His name is tramped through the dirt of this world. It functions as a curse word, a platform for the obscene that the world 
has little respect for God is vividly seen by the way the world regards his name. No honor, no reverence, no awe before him. And yet here in the thrust of this passage is this dramatic encounter between Isaiah and the Lord is revealed the holiness, holiness of God and how we as sinful mankind should respond to that holiness. It reveals that we are to, that something that is so encouraging to those who are weary, so mind-changing to those who are struggling in their thinking. It is something that gives us hope at the moment of despair, to know that God is holy and wants, to, wants us to respond to that holiness. It's very, very important. In Isaiah 6, we see here that a very uh, much a, uh, a, an important moment in the life of Isaiah. Isaiah has come to the temple. But the temple he ends up being shown is the heavenly temple through the vision. And in this vision, there is such a dramatic and amazing display. He is overwhelmed. And we know from it that there is a symbolic element throughout. And so as we go through this passage, we'll be seeing that element, the symbolism involved. You know, the Lord is holy. But He also has said that He wants us to live as He is holy. Live holy as He is holy. In 1 Peter, we see that. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. To be holy as I am holy. Is this even possible? Yes, it is. It is. There are many attributes of God, and some he shares with us in, as he has created us. There are others that we are not a, a, allowed to have, or we do not have. Yet there are some that in a portion we have received as we are created in his image. So there is an aspect where he wants to allow us, wants us to be different, wants us to be apart, wants us to be holy as he is holy. Now this particular attribute of holiness, it is sometimes hard to understand. But it is the most majestic attribute that he has. It supersedes all the others. It doesn't take them away, but it is like immensely more important. And so that's why we see in this passage that it does not say faithful, faithful, faithful. It does not say uh, goodness, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. It's holy, holy, holy that he is referred to by the angels. So God's holiness is so majestic that it, in a sense it puts our sinfulness in the proper perspective. And that's what we see happening with Isaiah. Suddenly he realizes how holy God is and recognizes how unholy, unworthy he is. We'll see that in more detail further. Here in this passage we see five dramatic truths, even life-changing truths. First of all, I'll just run through them that, that, that God's holiness is majestic 
and awe-inspiring. And secondly, God's holiness sets fire to our worship. And we'll see how that is true. God's holiness, thirdly, is it awakens our confession. And God's holiness also purifies our iniquities. And finally, God's holiness calls for our obedience. There's relationship involved. He is not this God out there who just kind of, you know, wants to zap people when they don't do it right. He's not involved in that. He wants relationship. He is intimate. Of course, there is his, who he is and who we are. And so the relationship is secure in that. We aren't trying to usurp his role. We aren't coming to him like, uh, hey, you know, you're, you know, God, our buddy. We're coming to him as he would want us to come to him. Dependent upon him in the relationship. Yet in that relationship, he wants to inspire us towards living for him. So firstly, in verses one and two, we see that God's holiness is majestic and awe-inspiring. Majestic and awe-inspiring. I see a painting here, if it comes up, if I had it right. Yes, okay. there's two actually. This one, here you see the vision of Isaiah. You see the angels there, and he comes and uh, brings the tongs to touch the lips of Isaiah. Okay, and then there's another one that's a little bit more clearer. You see how he comes over, flies over, and, and you see in the background there the, the presence of the throne and of God. And it's majestic. It's an amazing sight. Now, when did this happen? Historically, it happened in the year of King Uzziah's death, where it says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw. He didn't say he dreamed. He didn't say some, something happened to him magically. He saw what the Lord wanted him to see. Now, who is this Isaiah? He's considered to be one of the greatest of all the prophets. His book is a collection of, of such oracles and prophecies and reports and explanations of who God is and what God is doing or what he will do. He's a messenger. A message of, of salvation, that is the theme. And in fact, his name means salvation of Yahweh. And the situation was this, that, and you see in the first five chapters where there has been these uh, explanation of how decadent and immoral Israel had become. And Uzziah, of course, he started off well, as a king that was devoted to God, but his pride got the best of him and the Lord gave him leprosy because of his pride, because of the allowing of defiant idolatry in the land. And so it did not end well. So when Uzziah, Uzziah finally died, Isaiah was discouraged. Maybe those who were devoted to the Lord were discouraged. While Uzziah was there, things seemed to be, even though they were gradually getting worse, seemed to be peaceful. In fact, it talks about in Isaiah how it was peaceful. And yet now, Uzziah was gone. What would happen? What would be the situation? There was no security. A sort of panic or dread came. And even fear and depression. And part of Isaiah going to the temple, it is believed that he went there to receive 
some sort of encouragement because he was still God's messenger. In Isaiah, there is a lot there. Some feel that it is actually the fifth or maybe the first gospel because there is so much in there about, about the Messiah. So much in there that, that it was uh, evident that some of what is in there was fulfilled through Christ and we see that in the four gospels. So there's a lot there. And I, I believe that in this portion of scripture, Isaiah was so encouraged that he was able to go quite possibly 60 years in ministry as God's messenger. So what did he see? It says pretty clearly, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So he saw the Lord. Now, what does this mean, the Lord? Well, this particular word here at the beginning of the passage is the uppercase L and the lowercase O-R-D. This refers to the Hebrew term Adonai, or sovereign one, majestic one, holy one. And it means that because it's explaining who he is to, to Isaiah. You know, Isaiah and many of the people probably put much of their trust in Uzziah. And he was gone. And one author says, now, that, now with that in mind, you will understand verse 1. In the year that we lost, and it could be paraphrased in this way, in the year that we lost our human king, I saw the real king. There never can be much panic set in when you know God is still on the throne. It may have looked to Isaiah as if the whole thing was falling apart, but Adonai is a title meaning the sovereign one. So take, take notice. Don't worry. Don't panic. Know that he is the sovereign one over all circumstances. And holy. He is our holy Lord. What do you think about God? When you think about God, what do you think about him? A.W. Tozer wrote this. Whatever comes into your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. It directs our life our thinking, our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors, our feelings, what we think about God. Dr. Stephen Lawson said, our ultimate worldview is shaped by our, by our knowledge of God. He's right. There is no substitute for that. So my encouragement to all of us is to cultivate such thinking that, that ministers to your heart thereby giving you hope. Isaiah here was in the temple. He was seeking encouragement. He began to see things that God showed him, and it put things in proper perspective for him. He was no longer grieving about Uzziah. He had the real king still on the throne, high and lifted up. And what else does it say? His robe, or the train of his robe, was filling the temple. Now this train of the robe that fills the temple is signifying kingship, royalty. The longer the train of the robe, the greater the royalty, greater the king, greater the authority. And so, again, I would ask, who is this Lord? Who is this Lord? It is said 
We find it in John chapter 12, the answer to that question. If you turn to John chapter 12, we see where it says exactly who this is on the throne. John 12, verse 41. And it says this. After referring back to Isaiah, actually quoting, verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, capital H, and he spoke of him. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ on the throne. Christ is being exalted here. Christ is being seen. Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He is the one sitting on that throne in his rightful position as king of the universe, as judge over all the earth. And so the, the idea here, of course, is to the, God has come and he has shown Isaiah, the pre-incarnate Christ, to encourage him that he is on the throne, never left the throne. Yes, they had a king. He was a, a great king at times, but he ended badly. Don't be discouraged. Christ is on the throne still. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, tells us that who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome, in promises, working wonders. Who is like you? That's a question that we must ask ourselves about our relationship with the Lord. Who is like you, Lord? There's no one. No one greater than him. Now also what Isaiah sees in this passage, in this, in this vision, we see in this passage, is that he sees the seraphim. Who are these creatures? They're special creatures. Beings, and they are only mentioned here. And they are literally known as the fiery ones. The fiery ones. The radiant ones. The ones who glow. And they're, 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 they're there to give glory to the Lord. As we see them doing. And they are brilliant as a flaming fire. And this is a symbolic element of purity. Before the Lord. And what do we see them doing? Well, they're covering themselves with their wings. They have six wings. With two of those wings, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Uh, this is very, very significant symbolism. So we could refer to the two that cover their face as the wings of reverence. They are revering the Lord, covering their, their creatureliness and from the Lord and His holiness, because he is, he is awesome and magnificent, and they are not. And they are acknowledging Him by their actions, by covering their face, because of the overwhelming glory coming from the Lord. But also, they use two wings to cover their feet. Well, what is this? It's wings of humility. Wings of humility. They're covering their body, especially their feet, because the uh, creatureliness of it, the, they are creatures, that they are, and so they are sh covering that so that they can uh, show humility before the Lord, a reverence and awe before Him. And, in, and that is an inspired thing as they are seeing the Lord in His wonderful 
exaltation. But then also they used two wings for service, and that is that they flew. They flew around the altar, around the Lord, and they served him as they did. And what did they do eventually? They came over to, the, uh, to Isaiah and they brought the tongue, a, a burning coal, and, and administered the forgiveness to him and his, uh, through, through that action. So as, you, as Isaiah sees all this, he is uh, amazed, of course. He falls down on his face. And we too, in God's presence, in his holiness, should fall on our face as well before him and bow, in a sense, to him, humbling ourselves. Since we are to be holy as he is holy, then the nearer we get to God, the more we shall see our limitations, our unworthiness, before him, we see him and his holiness, and we are touched by it. Secondly, in verses 3 through 4, we see that God's holiness sets fire to our worship. Now, this is a play on words I'm using here, because the, those who are worshiping the Lord in this vision are saying, holy, holy, holy. They are known as the fiery ones. And they must have been extremely... Uh, boisterous, resonating in the chamber of the temple. Holy, holy, holy. And another called back, holy, holy, holy. There's a, 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 a fieriness to their worship. And this is an unsurpassed kind of expression because it's three times. Three times that they say it in Scripture often is an emphasis, a kind of emphasis that gives to us an understanding of, of something that is more important than other things, a priority. So the proclamation, three times holy, is for emphasis. It is a way of making this attribute, attribute stand out more supremely than anything else. Now, it's important to understand what holiness is. Let me try and illustrate that or explain it. Interesting that this is not some other attribute, but holiness is his ultimate characteristic. It is his most Beautiful, his most magnificent characteristic. And it can be most beautiful, but it can be also very terrifying. And you see that in the vision, right? You see that Isaiah is amazed, but also terrified. And so I think to myself when I've heard of those teachers that have talked about and come back, in a sense, from the dead or, or had a vision and they've touched the hand of God and they've come to people and they've said... They say, I've, I've, I've been in the presence of the Lord. They never come back like Isaiah. They never are humbled like Isaiah. They're all very, actually very boastful about their, the fact that they've been in the presence of the Lord. To be in the presence of the Lord is a terrifying thing, a humbling thing, though it is also extremely beautiful and magnificent. So keep that in mind when you hear about these that have... Uh, gone and, they say, been in the presence of the Lord. Um, Dr. Stephen Charnock says, Power is God's hand or arm. Omniscience is his eye. Mercy, his bowels, or his internal uh, insides. Eternity, his duration. But holiness is his beauty. Holiness is his beauty. And we see that in the many parts of Scripture. He's also referred to here 
in this por portion as the Lord of hosts. Now, this term is a little bit different from the beginning. The first one was Adonai, correct? Now, that was capital L with lowercase o-r-d, but this is all capital, capital Lord. Now, this is referring to Yahweh, and that is his, referring to his essence of who he is, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord of the, Lord of the armies. And the whole earth is said to be filled with his glory. Filled with his glory. The fullness of all the earth is, is, is there. The glo his glory is the fullness of the whole earth. And Tony Evans, the Bible teacher, says, Holiness is the centerpiece of God's attributes. Of all the things that God is, at the center of his being, he is holy. God's holiness unlocks the door to understanding and making sense out of everything else about him. We could spend a lot of time studying God's holiness and maybe even scratch the surface. And yet it's not the knowledge that's so important and not the, uh, uh, under, it's more the understanding that is more important. The understanding of how his holiness touches our own lives. That's what's more important. How it changes us as we see it changing Isaiah. Since we are to be holy as he is holy, then we must consider some things. Isaiah is not the kind of text we just read and move on. It's something to ponder, something to think about. Because it gives to us an understanding of some of the most important things of life. Who is God? What's he like? What does that matter to me? Should I live according to the way in which he says I should live? Is he my, truly my authority in life? Now, as we come to the next passage, starting in verse 5, it says this, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean clean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's that term again, the Lord of hosts. God's holiness awakens our confession. God's holiness awakens our confession. Isaiah is so moved by what he sees that he just has to respond. And the obvious response to him is that he is unworthy. He is a man unforgiven even. A man of unclean lips. Now this sort of, uh, sort of language also is seen in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. When I saw him, the Lord, Lord Jesus, I fell at his feet. This, this is John talking. I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. See, God's holiness sparks something in us that we must respond to. It awakens in us the fact that we are unworthy, and yet he brings, goes a step further and gives us hope in the midst of that. And that is encouraging. Isaiah's senses and his heart are completely affected by this vision. God is, is helping him to realize his own unworthiness before the holiness of God. And as he does that, 
we find that there is a, a transformation in the man. He came there in despair. He came there not feeling that he could go on. Yet, the Lord has met him. The Lord has done something in him. And we know that he carried on from there. Notice here, though, his response too. Uh, as he reacts to God's holiness, he says four things. I am ruined, unclean, I live among unclean people, and my eyes have seen the king and his holiness. Those are the four things that, that come out of it. And this is something that we must ponder as well in our own lives. Each day we have the opportunity to confess our sins and to receive his mercy. What does that do? Does it get us, when we sin, we fall out of heaven and fall out of being a child of God, and then we confess and we, we jump back in again, and then we sin and we jump back out again? No. As believers, as those who believe by faith, as children of God, we are still, when we sin, his children. But fellowship is broken, and he doesn't want that. And daily he is available. We don't have to go through any mediator. We go right to the source. We go right to Christ. And even Isaiah was not silent. He confessed right there in the temple, seeing the vision that he was seeing. He confessed to the Lord who he saw himself as and recognized himself as. And what did he do? He fulfilled 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I saw this, I've seen numerous times, and I've even experienced in my own life, the, the relief coming from confession. Relief when we turn to the Lord and agree with Him where there is sin. But when we were over in Manila, one of my students caught me after class. His name is J. Mark. And J. Mark is, has gone on to serve in a very hard place, but a very, he's also seen fruitful ministry. But he found me one day, and he started crying. He said, I have something to tell you, sir. And then he started crying. I said, why don't we just pray? You tell the Lord. And he was changed from that day on. There were some things that he gave to the Lord that day that he had been holding back, that he had been holding in his heart, that had been habitual things that he was wanting to break free of. And he went on to, to be sent out as a pastor to one of the lower islands at a church there. It was uh, quite a, a, a visible change in his life. Proverbs 28 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And J. Mark found compassion that day. Perhaps that's something that's gone on in your life as well. And that's something to disciple others in as well. Confess our sins one to another is the concept. Since we are to be holy as He is holy then, ask yourself these questions. Have you contemplated God's holiness compared to your sinfulness? How does it measure up? Have you considered your own lips as Isaiah considered his? Have you, how have you seen their uncleanness? How have they shown it to you? Have you ever realized that you are not covered 
by the righteousness of Christ's atonement and not sure what to do about that. You might think to yourself, well, I'm, you know, I'm good enough. God and I are tight. I understand him. He understands me. Yet at times, <laughs> that's not what Scripture says. And we know at times we struggle. And uh, he wants us to come to him. He wants us to be covered by, the, by Christ's righteousness, by his atonement on the cross. That's the whole point of the cross is forgiveness. The whole point of the cross. He's outstretched in the middle of, of, of two thieves dying there with him. The whole point is forgiveness of sins. The sins of the world are about to come on him. And one of them turns and, and seeks forgiveness. And the other did not. The epitome of what we have going on in the world. A, a symbolism, or if you will, or a picture of it. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for our sins. And it's turning to him in confession. He's telling him. I see my sinfulness and I want it taken away. I want your, 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 your death on the cross to be for me. Fourthly here in verses 6 and 7, we see something very unique happen. God's holiness purifies our iniquities. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. The burning coal, well, all of this is very symbolic. So let me run through some of the symbolism to help us. Uh, the burning coal is symbolic of sacrifice and atonement and forgiveness. Now, this holy thing that touches the dirty mouth of Isaiah, it does not hurt him, it actually heals him. And what we must see here is in the whole context of the Bible is that this burning coal symbolizes the finished work of Christ on the cross. He touched him on the mouth. We know that Scripture often refers to the things that come from the heart and out of the mouth as being sinful. We know that. And so it's symbolic of that, that his ruined state it's interesting that it would focus on his mouth, that he himself would focus on his lips and his mouth and cry out for the Lord's cleansing. He's doing a woe is me. Before he ever went into the rest of his life and pronounced woe, which he had to do many times, we see it in Isaiah, on anyone else, he first said, woe is me. Which is important. If we begin to realize that we want to serve the Lord, we too must come to him in confession and be um, cleansed. The word iniquity is here. It's a verb. It's a basic meaning is to bend, to twist, to distort. Twisting of the standard. It's the idea where there is referring to guilt and punishment for guilt. But there's also taken away. It conveys the primary sense of to turn aside and, 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 and means to depart or have it removed. And it is taken away by another. It's taken away by ultimately by Christ on the cross when he came. Sin, though, is the problem. Sin is the barrier. 
It's falling short of the divine standard. Yet, those sins can be forgiven, and we see that here. The final word written in that verse, forgiven or forgiveness. It's a purging or a covering over is also the idea. Covering over by way of the ransom. An atonement by blood. We see that in Leviticus 17. The whole point of the Levitical um, uh, sacrificial system is that there is an understanding that it is a picture of what Christ will do, what the Messiah will do. And so it's an Old Testament picture daily in the temple with the sacrifices of a New Testament truth that came to be, came to pass. And the promise was fulfilled. The prophecies were fulfilled in Christ. Now you may say to yourself, you know, I look at myself and I have iniquities. We all do. We all do. But as we ponder them, as we think about them, we must realize that God wants us to be cleansed from them. You may be uh, a parent and you find yourself unsure how to, to lead your children as they grow and to explain to them about Christ, explain to them about the, the Christian life. It is, sometimes it's hard to know where to start. I would encourage you to go to certain key verses to start there. One of them would be 2 Peter chapter 1, 8 through 11, where he has just been talking about we have this thing called faith, but we add to our faith certain character qualities. That's in verses 5, 6, and 7. We add to our faith certain character qualities. If we want to know how to help our children grow, we need to look at their faith first, and then once they have faith, also we want to talk about and work with them on the character qualities that are most important, that God sees as fruitful. But here in verses 8 through 11, it says, and referring back to these qualities that are added to our faith, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his what? His purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling, his calling in their life, his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So you struggle in growing and growth in your life. Focus on those character qualities that matter. Add them to your faith. Make a habitual focus on them. And you'll begin to see growth. Fifthly, we look at verse 8. God's holiness calls for our obedience. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. Now first, Isaiah saw. Saw what was going on in the vision, in the temple, in the heavenly temple. Then he was cleansed. Then he heard the Lord. And he responded. And it's, he is now, after the touching of the coal on his lips and being cleansed, he is now ready for service. He is now ready to respond. He has been born again, in a sense. 
by the righteousness of God, by the holiness of God in his life. And so the voice of the Lord uh, speaks to him and he responds. Now notice here it is, whom, sh whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here's a reference to the Trinity here. And, of course, Isaiah says, it's, it's, here am I, send me. Keep in mind that our lives, once we have received such a, a blessing of forgiveness, of cleansing, we do not live our lives now in order to get, get on his good side. We are now on his side. But now when we serve, there is out, it's out of gratefulness, out of thankfulness. We are not trying to win our salvation. It can't be won anyway. But we are serving him in gratefulness. And so since we are called to be holy as he is holy, then shouldn't we also be obedient to his call? Shouldn't we follow through and take the, uh, the message that we ourselves have received to others? Notice, and we haven't looked at it yet, but go to, into verse 9, and you see in verse 9, the first several words, what God instructs this man who said, I am he here am I, send me. What does he say? He, the Lord, said, go and tell this people. Go and tell this people. Now, of course, he had to pronounce upon them some pretty tough stuff. Woes and, and, and calling out their sinfulness because they had become independent of the Lord, decadent, idolatrous. And so Isaiah, in actuality, Isaiah's ministry was not one of your success type of ministries, right? Israel ended up being taken into captivity by the country of Assyria. And that was because they did not repent. So it was not one of those success-oriented ministries. But he was called to do what he was called to do, and that was to pronounce God's will upon their lives and bring about a, uh, a knowledge of the fact that the Lord was not happy with them. So as we respond to this as well, God's holiness, it, of course, is very awesome. It is awe-inspiring. It is uh, majestic. And yet, as we ponder that, as we think about His holiness, there are certain responses that come upon us that we should take note of. We are called upon to be obedient to Him, to His calling, to follow Him, to serve Him, just as the angels did in the, in the vision. They flew and they served. We also are called to serve from here on. We allow, what we want to be able to do is to allow the holiness of God to touch our lives in such a way that we too are responding very much like those characters here in, in this passage, in the vision. And that is that, that we are worshiping Him and His holiness, that we are awakened in our heart related to confession, that we then are purified of our iniquities as we do, and that purification often comes from believing a simple verse like 1 John 1, 9. Maybe you've been like me. There have been times where I brought my sins to the Lord and confessed them, but did not believe that he was willing and maybe at times capable, because of our, my own pride, to say, 
that he has fulfilled that promise, that if I confess. And that's disbelieving. That's, that's not believing his promises. But we can be purified of our iniquities, and then we will be suitable or ready or prepared to answer the call. Here in the sixth chapter, we discover some wonderful things. We need to ponder them, think about them. But also, we need to take that message, that message of salvation in God alone, in the Lord alone, to others. And this is what uh, Isaiah himself ended up doing. Since we are called to be holy as he is holy, uh, uh, let's close with this. How often, or do you ever find yourself in awe of God's holiness compared to your sinfulness? Is that something that goes on in your life? It can be a regular thing. It actually is very freeing, very releasing to ponder His holiness and in prayer turn to Him and give to, our, him, give to him our, our sin, calling them what they are. It releases us from guilt. Guilt is not something that the Lord wants in our lives. It's supposed to be something that moves us towards Him to freedom and victory. Can you honestly say that Jesus is your sovereign Lord? Do you regularly practice worshiping Him and His holiness? Thanking Him for the things that He has done? Do you confess your sins each day according to 1 John 1.9? Are you answering His call in your life? This is a new church. Many of you are already serving. Along the way, you may see adjustments happen. You may find that what you thought you were going to be doing, the Lord is moving you in a different direction to meet another need. Go willingly. Seek the Lord as to any kind of changes that need to take place and be available to Him. Can you say with certainty, lastly, can you say with certainty that your sins are forgiven, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? This was the point of the cross. He was our substitute. He took the wrath on himself. And we are blessed by it because of faith. Faith in him alone. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for what you have done. For this passage of scripture which challenges us in so many ways. We praise you for it. We love you. We want to be known as a people of the book. And this passage of the book is so powerful in our lives that it, we ask that it will be remain in the forefront of our thinking each day that we will be able to, to know for certain that you are working in our lives. We trust you to lead us and guide us. You know all that each and every one of us is facing. You know exactly what it is that we are going through. We may be facing trial, we may be facing joys, whatever that may be, Lord. I ask, Father, that we will not lose sight of this relationship that you have for us and uh, have established through faith. We ask, Lord, that, that this church will be blessed in this, this uh, part of the world, this city. We ask that the message of Christ alone, through faith alone, will go forth through the relationships we have with so many people. We trust you, Lord, to lead us in this 
and we look expectantly to how you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen.